Well, good morning, everyone. Been an interesting week, hasn't it? Been? Wasn't it like a week and a half ago there was snow on the ground or something like that? And it was almost 100 degrees, it felt like this week, and now it's supposed to be cold again next week. So, welcome to the Midwest. Welcome to the Calum. Isn't that what life is like for us? Continually changing, uh, usually unexpected, and, uh, and things just always happen. Um, and it just really has me thinking a lot about uh, some of the seasons that we've been through, some of the seasons that we're going in. Um, I appreciate what John had to say. I think that's very uh, poignant for where we are, this idea that the Lord is up to something. The Lord is beginning to move amongst us. Um, the Lord is doing things, and some of it it's not things that we're necessarily used to or things that we've seen in the past. Um, and, and because of that, there's a bit of trepidation, uh, maybe a bit of... Um, I don't know, fear in moving into some of the things that the Lord is doing. Um, but that verse out of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Again, I tell you, be strong and courageous. Have I not told you? Be strong and courageous. I love that that the uh, angel of the Lord, God, basically tells Joshua three times. You know, sometimes it takes three times for the Lord just to tell us repeatedly, be strong and courageous. Have I not told you? Be strong and courageous. We've been working our way through Revelations, which leads us to be strong and courageous. Um, for the last couple of weeks, we're looking at the, at the seven churches uh, that Jesus uh, wrote letters to. Um, this, this picture of what Jesus' desire is for the church. And that's the question that we're asking about our church. You know, coming out of COVID, coming out of all the seasons that we've been through, as the Lord has replanted us literally in many ways. Um, what is it? What is the church supposed to look like that Jesus desires? Two weeks ago, we looked at the first two churches, the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna. The, the picture of the church in Ephesus was this large church that was really concerned on doctrine. It was doctrinally pure. But because it was so fixated on what was right and what was wrong, it completely lost uh, its first love, which was Jesus. Its focus was no longer on Jesus. It was just on uh, on appearances and what was right, what was wrong. And that we contrasted that to the church in Smyrna, which was small and under tremendous tribulation. And it had all the appearances of a church that really wasn't blessed, that there probably was something wrong with because they were tiny and they were continually under pressure. Things were not going well for them. But in reality, Jesus calls them faithful and true because they knew who their person was. They knew who their Last week, we looked at two churches that I just cannot pronounce to save my life. So, here we'll go again. We looked at the churches in uh, per, 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 Pergagamum and Thaisha. Uh, Pergagamum uh, adapted to the teacher, teachings and customs of the world around it. What it saw the world doing, it kind of adapted into. And it was in the center of pagan worship and, and other issues with it. And it just adapted to it. And then uh, Thaisha had a false teacher in place that basically taught them to do what was happening around the world, uh, what the world around them was doing. They led the, they led the people astray. In both of these churches, 
had an underlying theme, this idea of this fear of man, fear of the society around them, that unless they adapted the ways of the world around them, that they wouldn't be able to survive. And Jesus gave them this, this warning at the end that he would take their churches away. That, that just as, as he gave them life, he would take it away. But to those that held true to the faith, he would give the glory. Now today we're going to come to the next two uh, letters. Uh, letters, luckily, to churches that I can pronounce. The church in Sardis and the church in Philadelphia. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Revelations uh, chapter 3. Uh, otherwise, uh, it'll be on the screen. Uh, let's pray real quick. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here today as we dig into your word. Uh, Lord, just begin to speak to us. Allow us to hear clearly from you. Lord, let your word transform us. Let it change us. Thank you. Thank you that you're here. Pray all this. We're going to go uh, start this week in Sardis. Uh, throw up the map. Uh, once again, all these churches are in modern-day Turkey. Um, Sardis, as you can tell, is kind of in the middle there, right smack dab in the middle. Uh, Sardis was actually two towns. And you really need to understand this to understand what Jesus is saying in his letter. The initial town uh, was, was built as a fortress on top of a cliff, a very steep cliff. Um, and it was located on an extremely narrow strip of land. And there was only one way in. 1,500 feet below was the second city. And this is where the majority of the people lived. They lived in the valley below because there was room to spread out. And then they would go up into the fortress uh, when they were in danger, when they were under attack. Now, in reality, this unpenetrable fortress was penetrated twice. There were two times uh, that, they, uh, that they lost. The first time... Uh, they were under attack, and the attacking army was down below, and one of the people uh, in the city who was guarding the city dropped their helmet. And they scaled down the cliff to pick it up and scaled back up the cliff to get it. And the attacking army noticed the path that they took, and so they followed the guy up the path to invade the city. The second time, they didn't, re they didn't remember their shortcomings the first time, so they left the city completely And So twice the city was destroyed. There were two major military losses due to carelessness, not learning uh, what they did wrong in the past. And so that's an underlying theme as we look at Jesus' letter to them in Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. The angel of the church in Sardis write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast to it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and His angels. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just like in Sardis' history of carelessness, Jesus calls them out for being spiritually asleep. And we have this picture of what they look like. The outward appearance of them is they appear to be alive and well. But on the inside, they're dead. The Greek in this passage gives the impression that this is a second generation church. Uh, remember what you were taught. And that's a challenge, especially to us in the vineyard, especially in the vineyard movement, this idea of being a second generation church. The glory days of our movement were in the 80s and 90s. I, I didn't know what songs that Ben was going to pick this morning, but one of them uh, was an old timer. An old timer from the glory days. You've been around the vineyard as long as I've been around the vineyard. When you hear the older songs, you get excited and you have memories of what life used to be like. And the problem of that is we tend to live in the past and not recognize what's happening in the future. We remember the time when people got saved. You know, one time people got healed. One time there were great things that were happening. Even in our own church, we have this tendency to look into the past I can tell you tremendous stories of what God did with this church in the past. When we start reminiscing about the past, and we forget about the present. We live in the past. We live in the glories of our past. And the problem is, in the history of, of movements of God across the world, and even here in the United States, what tends to happen is they, they get so fixated on what happened in the past, trying to keep up presentation of what occurred in the past, that they miss what God is doing in the future, and they, they dribble up and die. Right now in the vineyard, we're under a massive reorganization. We're trying to figure out what God wants to do with us as a movement towards the future. It's a good thing. Because as we live in the past, things can die dry up in us. When you think about some of the great movements that occurred in this country in the last 200 years. Think about some of the great movements that occurred in the Western world. You know, in the, in the 1800s and 1700s, you hear the stories of John Wesley, who brought revival across England, who brought revival uh, through his people, brought revival here throughout the United States. You hear the stories of, of the Methodists that went, the circuit riders that went around, and the great number of people who were evangelized and saved. And this tremendous movement that a hundred years later is, is incredible. Move from being a movement of God to trying to manage an institution. And that should be something that we really pay attention to. And, and when we move from that, from being in God's presence and moving in what He's doing, to just trying to manage it and look like, look good, what ends up happening is we tend to look healthy on the outside. We have all the things that should be there, but on the inside, on the inside, we start to dry up and we become. We begin to focus on works. You know, we all talk about that we're saved by grace, but we tend to get worried about what our outward actions look like other people more than what God is actually doing through us. But, but that kind of leads us to this interesting question. Why do we exist? 
Why is the church in its place? Is it here for the comfort of its members? Is it here just to continue a legacy? Or is it here to see the kingdom of God advance? Jesus tells us that if we love Him, we would do what He commands. And his, on His last great command was simple. Go and make disciples. Go and tell others. Go and advance the kingdom of God. But what happens is, as we get older, we get tired. As a church gets older, it gets tired. And instead of looking outwards, it begins to look inwards. It looks pretty on the outside. On the inside, nothing is pretty. There's no life. There's no life. And that's a warning to the church. That's a warning to us. As we're in a place... Uh, really a place of decision, a place of crossroads of what the future holds. What do we focus on? What do we do? Is it making uh, make it, it look nice? Making sure we're comfortable? Or is it going out to places that are uncomfortable? Inviting people in that are uncomfortable because we want to see God's glory and His grace, His kingdom advance. Is it about the mission of God or is it about Notice the warning he gives. He'll come like a thief in the night and take away all that they have. Just like the armies did in the past. They're not focused. They're not paying attention. That warning is to us. The question is, are we alive and well or are we spiritually dead? Are we just It all comes back to where we started on the first love. Are we following Jesus to what He wants or are we just resting on our past? It's all about Him. What we do. Why we do. It's all about him. And that's the question to answer. What's interesting is the sixth letter is a totally different church. Totally different focus. It's the church in Philadelphia. Go ahead and throw up the map. Uh, Philadelphia, in this case, is just south of Sardis, not in Pennsylvania. It's in Philadelphia. I know that's confusing. Some people read this and go, wow, Jesus wrote a letter to the church here in the U.S. No, different Philadelphia. Philadelphia was located on a vol volcanic area. It was frequently covered by ash, which meant the ground was incredibly fertile. Incredibly fertile. It was also strategically located on a major trade route that linked Asia with, with Europe. And because of that, it was a hub city. It was a place where commerce happened, where people were at, where a lot of things occurred. also happened to be a missionary, which is quite interesting. The gospel spread throughout that city and spread to places around it. Now, there's an interesting tidbit about the city. Most of the people lived outside of the city because... Uh, being a volcanic area, it had a tendency to have earthquakes, which meant that if you lived in the city, there was an opportunity that the walls would literally fall down upon you. People tended to live outside of the walls because of the fear of them collapsing. And Jesus actually talks about that starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut, 
I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and on the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on, on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a city that gets it, a church that gets it. Verse 8, I know your works. Unlike Sardis, they're not wanting. Their actions are motivated by the love of Christ, the love for Christ. Jesus says, you have little power, yet you kept His word. They have not denied His name. Walking with love for Christ, not fear of man. And that's the call that we're under. That's the meaning of all the letters so far. Who is it that you're going to follow? Because we're going to follow someone. We're going to follow something. We're going to follow some group. We all do. What motivates us to do what we do? Is it a fear of man or is it a fear of God? See, when we say fear of man, we tend to think it's the outside world like those other two churches from last week. But in reality, sometimes the fear is from within the church. We're fearful of what those inside the church are going to say to us. We're fearful of what other people will think if we do something. If I go pray for someone, what will other people think of me? If I worship God, what will other people think of me? I raise my hands. Why do we do what we do? Is it to follow Jesus or is it because we're afraid? Those are Notice Jesus' promise to them. He speaks to all of their fears and their weaknesses. Never shall you go out from the temple. No need to fear of being in the city for fear of destruction. He also talks about the name. That's important to them. Because Philadelphia changed its name. It was also known as uh, Neo Caesarea and Flavia. Both honor the emperor. Jesus tells them, I will give you a name, a name that will last. Name that will give you an identity that will There's an interesting contract between these two churches, and it's extremely relevant to us. Something we need to touch Of all the seven churches, Sardis was among lowest in spiritual fervor. History tells us about the church in this city that it was incredibly accommodating to pagan religions environment around it. Not like the previous churches that, that brought pagan influence into it where they were influenced by it. Instead, the church kept to itself. I own that mindset. I tried to keep it as inoffensive Possible world around it, 
trying to be ignored. Point. I'm not even sure that those around the church knew that the church was there. There's a benefit to that lifestyle, you know. And that was the church experienced very little persecution. Why persecute something that its inoffensive lifestyle gave it peace with the world, but it resulted in a spiritual and Jesus said, apart from a few faithful members who kept the fire of the gospel burning, the church itself was gradually dying, almost like a flame that lacked fuel and air. We know places. Over Philadelphia was different. Philadelphia was a hub city, like I mentioned earlier major crossroads of, of trade routes. And because of that, because so many people came in, they took things seriously. They took the mission seriously. And it became a missionary hub. It became a place where missionaries came out of across uh, all of Asia. The gospel went out from Philadelphia and was proclaimed loudly. So much so that the church did experience pushback. But here's the amazing thing about the church in Philadelphia. Unlike Sardis and the other churches in Revelations whose fires went out, the church in Philadelphia, which today it's modern uh, day um, Alashir, it's the only church that continuously stayed alive for the last 2,000 years. Continuously had a presence. Even though it's in the midst uh, of Islam. Continually the other churches. That's something I want you to consider as we wrap up today. It's so easy to be like Sardis. so easy to remember our past. It's so easy to put up a facade to make us look good, to make us look alive. But at the same time, it's so easy to be dying on the inside. So let me ask you this. This is the hunt. If we were to disappear today, if today was the last service we ever did in this church and we closed our doors and, and put a black shade on the side, today was it. Would anybody in this town notice? Would anybody? That's a scary thought, isn't it? We got this building two years ago, and uh, I meet people all the time, and I go, where's your church going? When we first got this building, I said the same thing, or said the same thing over and over. He looked at me and said, here. That's a scary reality and a scary, scary question to ask. And that should be something that should convict us because Jesus has called us to go out to make disciples, to advance his kingdom. This isn't just about doing church or putting on a nice Sunday service. 
This is about being the church to our community. Having the gospel, having the kingdom seep out of us so much that not only do we get noticed, but it begins to transform the community around us. Earlier this year, a group of us went to Orlando uh, for um, some training and a conference. And um, most of the leaders that were here that headed out, but I spent some extra time there. Uh, and I met with a church organization out of Kansas City called Kansas City America. I met with the leaders. I was just blown away. This is a, a group of, of like people that are trying to start a house church movement in Kansas City. And you think, house church? That's scary. But they have this, this model that they're doing, which just completely blew my mind. So they go and they move into a neighborhood. Just, just one family moves into a neighborhood. And then they start making friends. They don't do like small group, Bible study, they don't put up a sign, they don't even talk to Jesus. They just start making friends. And, and the guy I was talking to said they spent 18 months in this neighborhood, just living in this neighborhood before they had their first spiritual conversation. And it came naturally. And that led to a little Bible study, which led to another spiritual conversation that led to this small group that became counseled just focused on that little neighborhood. And it began to transform character and the environment of the community, that neighborhood. So much so that, that when people would move into the neighborhood, they were confused. Because all the people in the neighborhood seemed to be like really nice, friendly, and everybody knew each other. And they all hung out together. And, and the comment that he told me, he said, yeah, the people who live were like, this is something I don't And it wasn't that they were like banging the gospel or banging the Bible on people's lives. They were just living it out. And it got into a place in the neighborhood where it began to saturate the neighborhood. This picture of the gospel, this picture of the kingdom, transforming the community. They want to do that across the it led to a concept that I've been just thinking a lot about lately. This idea of gospel saturation. What would it look like if the gospel saturated our community? What would it look like if the kingdom saturated the cow? If the kingdom saturated NIU? If the kingdom saturated Sycamore and Northern DeKalb County? Not because we forced it on people or anything else, but because we lived it out in such a way where we made disciples in such a way that it just naturally happened. And lives were affected by it. How would that change your neighborhood if the gospel saturated the neighborhood you lived in? What would it look like? How would it be? Every month I have breakfast with all the pastors, all the evangelical pastors in the Pentecostal Catholic. We meet for breakfast, and we usually, if we can, we bring a community leader in the process. Sometimes a mayor, sometimes a non-for-profit, sometimes And over the last uh, couple of years, we've had three different community leaders. The mayor, uh, the new mayor for Calb, the new police chief for NIU, and uh, who, uh, the retiring uh, head of the circuit court. And one of the questions we ask is, you know, if the churches in DeKalb and Sycamore can do anything, we just come alongside and we'll 
And three times we heard the exact same comment. And the comment was this. He realized that all the problems in Calvin, Illinois, uh, tend to come out of the North Anglican. That's the area north of Kansas. It used to be Creek Row. It's still called Creek Row. But it's not as much Creek Row as it used to be. All crime, all the shootings, all the issues. I don't know if you, some of you might remember if you were with us a few weeks even out there, and even out walking in, some great ideas. COVID hit. And so we always have this conversation, we all sit together, well, what are we going to do? Should we do an outreach? Should we do an event? Should we do this? Should we do that? And the answer is always simple. What would it look like for the gospel? What would it look like if the church was planted in the midst of the university? What would it look like if we saturated lives were transformed because of the gospel? How would that change? How would it change? Lives were transformed. And that's the picture of what the church Jesus desires is supposed to be. A church that remembers its first love and living it out. And that's the church Jesus is calling us to become. Becoming a church, uh, becoming a church like that, though, doesn't start with like a rallying cry for me, like, ooh, let's go do it. Yay! It doesn't start with a great outreach. Come up with a great outreach if we could give away enough Coca-Cola to, to that neighborhood. Oh, I love Jesus. It doesn't start that way. It doesn't start with a great program. You know, we bring in all these programs here and we drag them into our building. It doesn't work. It doesn't start with a great Sunday morning service. Like, you know, we had a great band and smoke machine. Telling them lasers and people would love Jesus to be right there. It doesn't start like that. It even doesn't start if we had a fancy facility. Like we blew out this place and just built our stuff. You laugh, all right? But I know what you're doesn't becoming a church like that doesn't start with that. Look, Jesus took twelve really unremarkable guys. I don't know if you've read the Gospels, but these twelve they're not very bright. Okay, they're really not very bright. You know, Jesus tells them the same thing over and over again, and they're like, "Uh, can we now smote everybody." He took 12 pretty unremarkable guys and he turned the world upside down. Good news for us is there's slightly more than 12 people. Not much, slightly. They did it by simply taking Jesus' commands seriously. And there are only three who really boiled 
love God, love people, go and make disciples. That was the message. That was the commandment. Those three things. That's it. And they shaped their lives around them. Think about Paul for a second, all right? We read about Paul, and we have this idea that Paul must have had this tremendous traveling ministry, right? He didn't. Paul was a tent maker. He would show up in a city, and he'd get a job making tents. He hung out with the other tent makers. Now, it was a very you know, lucrative business for that time of day, for that period. Paul could have made a lot of money at it. But Paul used his skills that God gave him, not to enrich himself or as a way to create provision or a safety net. He used it as a tool to advance the call Jesus gave him, to love God, to love people, to go and make disciples. It was a tool to help him with the bigger call. And that's what our lives should be. Our lives tend to be wrapped up in this idea that we need to somehow protect ourselves. I need to make sure my job is secure so I make enough money and I have enough stuff so that I'm safe and I can protect myself. And God is saying, trust me. Trust me. Do what I've called you to do, and everything else will come together. So this isn't a call like to go quit your job and move to Africa. This is a call to realize that your call is greater than whatever it is that you're currently doing now. Becoming the church that Jesus desires us to be is simply organizing our lives around the three things that Jesus has called us to do. Love God. How do you organize your life around loving God? Remember what he said. Who is your first love? Who is the first love? It was supposed to be Jesus. That was supposed to be their, their focus, their desire. When we organize our life around Jesus, around our first love, around loving God, we become sensitive to what he wants to do in our life. We've begun to listen to Him and pay attention to His callings, to His leadings in our life. His desires begin to replace our desires. And we do that by spending time with Him, by spending time in His Word, by spending time in prayer. By focusing our life on Him. Then the second one is simple. Love people. How do we organize our life around loving people? Start with this. Start thinking better of people. In our society, especially today, we are driven to think poorly of people, to think people are out to get us, to think people are the issue and people are the enemy. But what would it look like if we actually led with love? If we loved people? If we forgave people? If we remember that God forgave us and so that forgiveness should pour out of us as well. What if we thought better? And we organized our lives around loving them instead of taking from them or getting even with them or anything else. What would that be? And then the final one is go and make disciples. 
That's challenging, isn't it? Because we don't know what that means. I started studying discipleship about 12, 15 years ago, and I came to the reality. I, I was introduced to Jesus in the late 80s, and I came to the reality that I had no idea what discipleship was. I'd never read what discipleship was. It's kind of awkward. His last command in Matthew, his first command in Luke, go and make from in Acts, go and the next couple months and weeks, we're going to position ourselves in a way that that becomes the focus of this church, making disciples. And we have some ideas on how to do that in a way that is easy, non-threatening, and very reasonable. The next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to roll this out kind of amongst us. We're going to get together in groups of three. We're going to try to disciple. We're going to actually use something that has been incredibly effective. Incredibly. Found a Western There's this picture of what is our life They're loving God, loving people, and the opportunity to speak life into people's lives. Do the things that Jesus commanded them to do, which would be to love God, to love people, to disciple other people. And that began to replicate itself again and again and again. And before you know it, the gospel was saturated. Simply by what the people described. So that's the church. That's the church sent its prophet out to That's the church that we're called to be. And the thing is, it doesn't start with us as a church. It starts with you. Holy Spirit, we just welcome. Lord, we thank you as as uh, John opened us this morning with this picture that you are with us, your presence is with us, that you are always with us. We know that. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even though these letters were written to other churches nearly 1,900, 2,000 years ago, Lord, we know that they're still relevant for us. Lord, as you said at the end of each one of these letters, for those who have ears, Father, begin to open our ears to hear clearly today. Lord, allow us to hear clearly as a church from you what you've called us to be. Um,
Lord, allow us to hear clearly for our own lives what you've called us to do. Lord, transform us into the church that you created us Transform us As I've been preparing and working through this series, um, the one underlying thing is always seems to be fear. This fear of, of persecution. This fear of what will people around me think. This fear of well, what if I can't do it. This fear of what it really comes down to of what if God isn't actually going to do these things. And that fear can be paralyzed. Stop us dead in our tracks. Prevent us from walking into whatever it is that we're So if, if the Lord is kind of pulling on you and you sense that bit of fear, I just want to invite you to grab up today. Feel free to come up. We want to pray for you. We want the Lord to come, the Holy Spirit to come, to break off whatever the enemy is trying to break off. And if you feel some other issue you need prayer for, feel free. Come up. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are with us. Lord, we thank you that you're still Peace the Lord Christ go with you wherever He may send you. May He guide you in the wilderness, may He protect you in the storm. May He bring you home rejoicing with the wonders that He shown you. Bring you home rejoicing with the Have a great Sunday, good week. If you need prayer, feel free to come up. Otherwise, we'll see you all.